So um, special prayers for the Summer Madness people. In the rain, I definitely picked the best year to go, Cheryl and I. We had sunshine back to back. Cheryl even got burnt, even though she denied it. And she was even saying that yesterday. She didn't get burnt last year, but yes, she did. I remember she was burnt. Um, but they'll be having a wonderful time up there. In all seriousness, why don't you pray for the young people that are there? Would you pray for them in the next couple of days that they would encounter Jesus in a way that completely changes their life? That this, it's great crack, and it's a wonderful experience to be away camping with your friends. But more than that, more than that, they are in the presence of God literally morning to night. So we just pray for a blessing on them and a, just an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a new way. When I was a teenager, do anybody remember um, the wee fish pins? You know the wee fish pins? Yeah. Anybody have one? Hands up. Who wants to admit? Yeah. Or um, people sometimes have the wee fish on their, on their car and all. But the wee fish pins were a big thing. It became a big thing in sort of Christian culture when I was uh, back in the 80s when I was a teenager. And um, I like to sort of then collect them. I was a real gift to the Christian marketing kind of industry. Any kind of wee things at all. In fact, when Jason and I first met, it's a wonder that we're married because I used to ha wear really, really awful baggy jogging bottoms and Christian t-shirts. Do you remember, Jace? And uh, they quickly made me get rid of them because honestly, it wasn't a good look. <laughs> How I managed to, to attract this gorgeous man, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, <clears throat> I digress. The pins, as well as having a wee fish pin, there was this other wee pin that was doing, doing the rounds at the time, and it was, all it said on it was, God is, I searched the internet yesterday trying to get a picture of it for you, but I can't find it, and it's long gone somewhere in the, like, yeah, it's probably in a box in our attic somewhere, but I wasn't going to start doing that yesterday. But I had this badge, and it just simply said, God is, then dot, dot, dot. And it was supposed to be a conversation starter. So you would wear it, and then someone would say to you, oh, what's that badge? Um, God is what? Or you would start the conversation. You'd say, well, who do you think God is? And this would be the whole thing. <coughs> to be honest, I don't think anyone ever asked me about it at all. I don't, think anyone, I don't think it ever started a conversation. But what it did do was it started me to think, who is God? And I would spend time thinking about that and I would fill pages of my secret diary. Do everybody else have a secret diary? Yeah. And before journals, journals are a real American thing. We didn't have journals back in the 80s and the 90s. We had diaries with a key and a lock. As if, no, no, Annette, did you never have a secret diary with a key and a lock? Who had a secret diary with a key and a lock? Yeah, there's a few of you. I see those hands. <clears throat> and I would fill pages about who is God? Who is he to me? In that time and that period of my life. And the one description I came back to time and time and time again was that God is love. I could never escape that one. And sometimes I would try to be really deep and spiritual and, you know, really like, and then I would try to find really obscure ones, which was good because then it would just teach me more about the character of God and who God was. But over and over in scripture and over and over as I read this book, I would just keep seeing this picture of a God of love. You see, there's this large overarching theme in this book. The story of God is one of a loving father who longs for relationship with his created sons and daughters. If you read this overarching story right from the very first page of Genesis right to the very end of Revelation, 
right from the very beginning of time itself, right through to the very end where we're all going, hopefully to be with Jesus, those of us who know him and have given our lives to him, we're going to be expend eternity with him. That whole overarching story is one of a God of love, a heavenly father who loves us. So lavish is his love. So lavish is the love of God himself. Through Jesus, he died for us. See, sometimes it's like we separate it up. But God is Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, God himself died. God gave himself for us. He crossed the divide that we couldn't cross. And he defeated our ultimate enemy so that we could live with him forever. Such is his love. And yet, although as a teen... God is love, was my go-to. And even though my heart always knew that I was loved personally and deeply by God, I still struggled with some of the misinterpretations of God that I'd been given. So yesterday morning, um, I left Caleb to work at seven. Jason and I normally fight over who's going to leave Caleb to work at seven o'clock on a Saturday, but yesterday was the last one he finishes today in Tesco so well done Caleb he's not here but well done if you're listening to the podcast which I'm sure you're not but anyway <clears throat> um, as I prepped this talk I came back and I was prepping the talk and there was a massive thunderstorm anyone else see the massive thunderstorm yesterday morning and I sat and I listened and then I stood at the door and watched the thunder and lightning and I did the old thing of counting I love that. You know, you count how many miles away is it? And then I get very excited if it's getting closer. So yesterday it did a funny thing. It kind of got closer for a wee bit and then it went away again. Didn't really come any closer than eight miles, I think. I counted yesterday morning. And I was just like, I love now thunder and lightning, but I used to be terrified of it. Anyone else used to be terrified or still are terrified of thunder and lightning? And I remember when I was younger, I would cry and hide and just wait for it to be over. I'd just be like, when is this going to be over? Um, and I know why I was terrified, because it was my mum's fault. It was Millie's fault, right? So years ago, in a flippant comment, she had said to me that the thunder was God shouting at us. Who tells her child that? Millie. That's who, right? So she said, this is God is angry. God is angry. That's why the thunder is really loud. So I used to be terrified every time the thunder came. I thought, so I would start confessing all my sins, usually under the quilt, confessing all my sins, going, God, I'm really sorry. You're so angry with me. And I, like, I, you know, all these things. And, I would, and then I would even confess old sins just to be sure, because then I thought he might stop. The shouting might stop if I confessed all the sins. And then as I got a wee bit older, I would start to think, oh, it's all that awful stuff you read in the news. That's why God's angry. No wonder God's angry because all these awful things in the whole world. So then I would start confessing on behalf of the whole world so that God would stop shouting in the, in the thunder. Now that sounds like a silly thing, but that actually was true. That is what I thought. I thought every time I heard the thunder, I thought God's angry with me. He's an angry, angry God. And at any moment, he just might wipe us all out. I don't know how many of you have grown up with that wrong image of God, that he's a God of wrath, that he's waiting to judge us, that he's just waiting for us to do something wrong so he can wipe us out, so he can smite us. It's a good old word, isn't 
In the summer of 1985, I'm reminiscing today. In the summer of 1985, me and two of my best friends, the two Allies, and one of their brothers were watching the Live Aid video. Anyone remember Live Aid? Most of the young people are away. Sorry, young people. If you haven't, don't know what Live Aid is, Google it when you go home. Wonderful, wonderful concert, 1985. Watched it from start to finish. So I had made a wee video. Sat all day, stopping, starting. Before remote control, we had a wire that connected the video across with a wee wired remote control, very state-of-the-art. And I stopped, paused, rewound, made sure that I got all my favorite bands in. We were watching it back again. And this massive thunderstorm started. And as usual, I was like closing the blinds, get, get away from the windows, get away from the windows. And, all. and we're all like, I'm like, turn off the TV, turn off the TV, the electricity will come through the TV. And all this panic was ensuing. And Adrian, my, my friend's brother, he was like, what are you doing? He opened the blinds, moved the sofa right over to the window. And there we were, four heads sitting perched up at the window looking out. And Adrian studied quantum physics. He's a very brainy boy. And he started explaining to me and the other two boys what and how thunder and lightning were formed. I'm just seeing Esther there. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, and he started explaining how the noise was created. He started telling us about all these different types of lightning. There was three different types of lightning in the sky that night. I didn't even know there were different types of lightning. It was amazing. And do you know what happened? I became fascinated by lightning and thunder. And I became like, instead of being afraid, I was full of wonder for my God that created it. God created this wonder. And instead of it being something that made me afraid, it just made me full of worship and wonder for God. See, my perspective of the, th the thunderstorm, and more importantly, my perspective of Father God began to shift and change. See, as we read scripture with Jesus, and that's the important thing, we can read this wonderful book and we can treat it like a manual. Or we can treat it like a textbook that we're studying to pass exams. Or the better way is to read this book with the author. It's to actually sit down with Jesus, who is the word, and allow the Holy Spirit to whisper in our ear as we read the words. It's a whole different experience. It's a whole different experience in studying it. For those of us, all of us in Northern Ireland, if you, if you went to school here, and not all of you did go to school here, I'm guessing, um, you would have done RE at school. Yeah. And it's the difference between studying it for an exam in school than sitting down with Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to breathe on these words and bring them to life. But as we read scripture with Jesus, the Holy Spirit reveals more and more exactly to us what God is like and who he really is. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation that's going to be on the screen. And you can follow along in your own Bibles. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Throughout our history, God has spoken to our ancestors by his prophets in many different ways. The revelation he gave them was only a fragment, a fragment at a time, building one truth upon another. But to us living in these last days, God now speaks to us openly in the language of a son, the appointed heir of everything. For through him, God created the panorama of all things and all time. The son, 
is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor. Isn't that beautiful? The sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. He holds the universe together and expands it by the mighty power of his spoken word. He accomplished for us the complete cleansing of sins and then took his seat on the highest throne at the right hand of the majestic one. Jesus is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor. He is the exact representation of God's true nature. So back to my badge. Who is God? Well, God is Jesus. So when we read about Jesus in the Gospels, when we hear him described in the epistles, we see a mirror image of God looking right back at us. Jesus is our lens, the one true lens to discovering exactly who God is. Time and time again in Jesus' ministry, which was about three years, we have detailed accounts of Jesus' ministry. Jesus talks about and shows love over and over and over again. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Your ancestors have also been taught, love your neighbors and hate the one who hates you. However, I say to you, love your enemy, bless the one who curses you, do something wonderful for the one who hates you and respond to the very ones who persecute you by praying for them. For that will reveal your identity as children of your heavenly father. He is kind to all by bringing the sunrise to warm and rainfall to refresh whether a person does what is good or evil. What reward do you deserve if you only love the lovable? Don't even the tax collectors do that? How are you any different from others if you limit your kindness only to your friends? Don't even the ungodly do that? Since you are children of a perfect father in heaven, you are to be perfect like him. Jesus tells us to love one another. Now the bar feels pretty low here, isn't it? Because the loving one another tends to make, it sounds like and feels like the, the one another are the people close to us, our family, our friends. They are one another's the people we come to church with, the people in our church family, the, the people that are close in and around our life. So Jesus said lots of times, love one another, love one another. And sometimes actually, I'm saying that's a low bar, but sometimes actually, though, you know, that's not a low bar, is it? Sometimes that's a bit, you know, that's also difficult. But then Jesus is saying, he raises the bar and he says, Do you know, don't just love people that are like us. Just don't love the people that, that are like you that look like you, that you have a lot in common with. He's saying, I want you to love your neighbor. And your neighbor is then everyone around you, everyone around you that you, you must love them. But then Jesus says, takes it another. Don't you love how Jesus does that? Sometimes I'd be honest, sometimes I just, like Jesus just raises the ante all the time, doesn't he? If you read through the gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount, it's like Jesus just takes it, says, you have heard it said. And you always know that when Jesus starts a sentence with that, he's just about to hit us with a whammy. You have heard it said, but, and then he's just about to go for the high bar. Love your enemy. That's difficult, isn't it? Love those who are against you. Love those who, it says, bless the one who curses you, verse 44. 
Do something wonderful for the one who hates you. Respond to the very ones who persecute you by praying for them. And you kind of want to go, Jesus, are you for real? That's what you want me to do? And yet that is exactly what he's asking of us. Jesus is saying, see all those other people? You see the them or the they? Anytime we begin to talk about them and us and they and other and those and use that kind of language, Jesus doesn't use that language. He's saying, love everyone. And if you still have people in those categories, if you still have people who are your enemies and people that, that you feel are against you or people that have wronged you and you're still struggling with, this is what Jesus says. I love this. Jesus says, do you know how to turn your enemies into your neighbors? How do you do that? He tells us right here. If you want to turn your enemies into your neighbors, then this is what you do. You bless them. You love your enemy. Verse 44, you love them. You bless them. You do something wonderful for them. You respond to them by praying for them. That's how we turn our enemies to our neighbors. I don't know about you, but I have prayed before. Have you ever prayed for someone who is your enemy? It's hard. You know, have you ever prayed for someone who's against you, who is, is, you know they're against you, you know they're talking about you behind your back, you know that they're going out of their way to do you harm. It's not just a, oh, they may not have meant that, but they are, they are intentionally going out of their way to do you harm. And you know what happens when you begin to pray? The first time you pray, you may not even get their name out. It might be, God, I know I should pray for that person. Amen. That's a good place to start. The next time, you might say their name. The next time, God might give you something specific. You might be able to say, God bless so-and-so. The next time, God might actually tell you something specifically to pray for them. And slowly but surely, when you persevere for praying for your enemies, all of a sudden, they turn from being your enemy to being your neighbor. Only God can do that in our hearts. There's no amount of self-help books. There's no amount of positive thinking is going to get you to that place of complete heart transformation between someone who is actively out to hurt you. Only God can do that. And I love that Jesus just doesn't tell us to do it and say, right, go and do it. Go and love your enemies, love everyone. And then it's just like he like leaves us to struggle in it. He actually comes alongside us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he strengthens us and he helps us. See, in Jesus, God's love just got more amplified and put on display. When Jesus came on the scene, it's like God's love just got turned up. It got amplified, but it also became a whole lot more challenging. See, you can't ignore love when it's walking around causing holy love havoc in the person of Jesus. You can't ignore it. You couldn't ignore Jesus. Everywhere he went, you could not ignore him. Jesus tells us to love like God, love everyone unconditionally without excuse. 
Now, this poses humans with a few difficulties, just a few, but not just in our modern world, but it would have caused problems back in the for first century Jews and Gentiles as well. But for us, I want to think about our current thinking this morning. And there's two things that I, I've, I've noticed and observed in our culture. And they're broad strokes, okay? So normally I give off to Jason for using broad strokes, but I'm going to use them this morning. So there's two, two broad strokes, same coin, two sides. And the first side is, we think that to love someone, I must agree with them about everything. If I'm going to love somebody, and I'm going to give them my love, then I must agree with them about everything. The second side of that coin is if I don't agree with you 100%, then you conclude that I hate you. Now, this one is very, the second side of the coin is very evident on social media. If someone disagrees with someone on social media, even slightly, it's like, you, you, you're, you hate me, you're against me, you're attacking me, and all, those, all that kind of thing. So we have these two polarized sides of this coin. One is that if I am going to love you, then I have to agree with you. And the other one is, well, if you don't agree with me, then I conclude that you hate me. See, love has come to mean that I have to agree with you. I have to agree with what you believe, how you live your life, who you love, who you hate, and I can't affirm and agree. If I can't affirm and agree with all of that, then I can't truly love you. And if you can't truly love me and affirm me then fully, then you must hate me. But that is utter nonsense. Do you ever get anxious about your reputation? As a parent... I've told my sons what I was told by my parents. Be careful who you associate with. Because there's a danger of guilt by association. How many of you have been told that? Yeah. And I get it. I get it on one hand. But you know what? I no longer believe it. And here's why. It stops us loving like Jesus. It stops us loving the way he did. We become afraid of what people will say about us if we show love to those whose culture or those in our culture or, or other people that, that we think, oh my goodness me, if I, if I show love to that person, then what are they going to think of me? What are they going to think of me? Are they going to think that I agree with their, their choices? Am I, are they going to think that, that all of a sudden that, that, that I think what they think? Is that what people are going to think about me? And we worry, well, well, what if we're seen to love or to cheer on a person or their lifestyle or their beliefs or their, their choices or whatever or their values? What if, if people think that by loving them that I'm agreeing with them, then, then are they going to think that all of a sudden I'm not a Christian anymore? Are they going to worry about where I am in my faith? See, Jesus found himself in a similar situation. Mind you, it was 2,000 years ago, pre-social media. The Samaritans were the hated outsiders, the worst of the Gentile non-believers in the Jewish eyes. Then you had the Roman oppressors. They were like an enemy pressing down on them on every side. And then you had tax, tax collectors. So they were Jewish people who were employed by the Romans to collect the taxes for Rome, but also they creamed off a very generous part on the top for themselves. So they were traitors to their own people, but also then they also extorted their own people. So they were like, like tax collectors were like the worst of the worst of the worst. Think human traffickers. 
that's, that's how we would probably compare today. Somebody who exhorted, extorted other people for their own gain. And then you have the Pharisees. They, they were the upholders of the law and truth at all costs. Now, they were hard-hearted, and they obeyed the letter of the law, but they had completely lost the heart of it. Jesus steps into the lives of all these people. And what is his response? To love. At all cost of any reputation he might have as a godly Jewish man, he eats with all the local sinners. Do you remember we Zacchaeus? Do you know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a very little man was he. Yeah, right? Luke 9, you find his story. Jesus was in Jericho where Zacchaeus lived. He was a short man. Probably, I imagine, about the height of Cheryl. Where is she? She's gone. Because <laughs> she's a small man. He was a small man. And he wanted to see Jesus when he passed by, so he climbed up a tree. We all know the story. Most of us should. We heard it at school often enough. Now, he climbed up a tree because he wanted to see Jesus. He may also not wanted to have been in the crowd because he was like villain number one locally. So we may not have wanted to be in the crowd of people in case they decided to give him a wee dig when they got a chance because he was in the middle of them. So we climbed up a tree. Jesus is walking through Jericho and he comes to the bottom of the very tree that Zach, Zacchaeus is on and he looks up and he says, you're to come down right now because I'm going to your house. In the song, it's for tea. But I think it was probably dinner. He says, go put the kettle on. I'm coming to stay at your house. Now, can you imagine everyone else who was in that crowd? Imagine the rest of us, because we're not Zacchaeus in the story, are we? We're never Zacchaeus in the story. So imagine the rest of us, and we had been queuing all day to see Jesus. The rumors had got to us that Jesus was coming to our town. Jesus was coming to Jericho. We'd came out, we'd packed a picnic and everything. We'd got our wee spot. We're standing at the side of the road waiting for Jesus to come, and we're so excited, and we're thinking, like we couldn't even have imagined. Imagine thinking to yourself, Imagine Jesus came to my house. You wouldn't even think that. It would just be too beyond you. We're like, no way. Like, Jesus wouldn't come to my house. And there Jesus stops at the bottom of this tree, looks up at public enemy number one, the biggest scoundrel in the town, and invites himself back to his house for tea. Well, what's that all about? But what happens when Zacchaeus encounters the love of Jesus? Before Jesus says another word to him, before Jesus says anything other than come down from the tree, I'm going to your house now to spend time with you, Zacchaeus says, I am going to sell all my possessions and I'm giving half of them to the poor. I'm going to give back every bribe that I've taken, every money, every penny that I have extorted from people, I'm giving it back. Because it's the love of God that leads us to repentance. It's the loving encounter with Jesus that leads the case to repent. Because what is repentance is when we turn our lives completely around. When we do a 180, we go, I was walking this way, and all of a sudden, no, I'm going to walk this way in the life that God has for me. And that's exactly what happened as a case. One encounter with Jesus, a loving encounter, an accepting encounter, and it completely transformed his life. And then there's one of my favorite stories. In John 4, we meet the Samaritan woman. And Jesus greets her at the village well. 
And Jesus has a complete disregard for his reputation in this encounter. He is a Jew, so he shouldn't really be passing through Samaria unless he has no choice. And even then, he would move very fast because you wouldn't want to become contaminated. The Jewish people wouldn't want to become unclean by having anything to do with the Samarians. You definitely wouldn't be stopping for a chat. He's a single man, so he shouldn't be chatting to a woman on his own because that's not good for his purity reputation. And they wouldn't drink from the same well, usually. Jesus has a total disregard for what people think. I would love to be more like Jesus. So here's the part of the story that we have been mistold over and over. Jesus asks the woman for a drink. She obliges, but she comments that he shouldn't be asking her for one. He says, why are you a Jew and you're asking me for a drink? <clears throat> he takes a drink. He chats to her and riddles about him giving her living water. Then he asks to speak to her husband. She replies, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, yes, I know you've had five husbands. Now, here's the thing. Until recently, probably like you, I've been led to believe that this woman, the fact that she had five husbands and the man she was currently living with wasn't her husband, meant that she was a woman of ill repute, right? That she was, for want of a better word, a hussy. Is it okay to say that word? trying to think of, is that not polite? I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the word. You pick, paint the picture. But here's the thing. As a Samaritan woman, 2,000 years ago, she would have had no access to divorce. So if she has had five husbands, there are a few reasons why that might be, but none of them would be of her making. She's either widowed or she's been abandoned and cast aside by her husbands. And the current man that she's with is not even doing the honorable thing of making her his wife. So can we stop talking about this woman like she's a hussy? She was a victim in this story. So Jesus meets this broken woman at the well and he shows her dignity, he shows her love, and he certainly doesn't pour more shame onto her. Our beautiful, kind, gentle, loving Jesus chooses this woman with her broken reputation, with her brokenness in her life, with her grief, whatever has led her to these circumstances. And he chooses her to be the first person to know that the good news is also for the Gentiles. Isn't he lovely? He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care what people would think of him talking to this woman. I want us to be more like Jesus, to love more like Jesus, to forget about our reputations, but instead to see the brokenness in the people in front of us. And instead of responding in judgment or feeling that we need to have the right answers or feeling that we need to even um, bring correction or any of those things, and there's a place for those things, but instead of that, I want us to look and see the human in front of us, their brokenness, their pain, and to love them like Jesus. I don't want us to be afraid of what people will think of us if we do. We lean in. And we love like Jesus. Time and time again, he pushed past, trampled 
the plain and just plain ignored what people thought of him. He refused to build a good reputation. Jesus refused to build a good reputation. He loves unconditionally and yet was without sin himself. He was surrounded by sinners because he was surrounded by people. So if we were there, he would have been surrounded by us and we're sinners too. Jesus, how did Jesus live a sinless life surrounded by people? How did he do that? He never sinned. He knew the law, he attended the temple, and yet his love for people meant that he was often seen as unclean due to the people he ate with, associated with, and physically touched. I am so challenged by the love of God spread in Jesus. I don't want to worry anymore. I don't want us worrying about being seen as good Christians because of who we associate and who we don't associate with. Because that's not what I see in Jesus. We all sin. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. We're all broken. Some of us have just got healed up more along the way by God. See, Jesus didn't agree with the extortion of the tax collectors. If you notice that, Jesus didn't agree with what they were doing. But it didn't stop him from making one one of his disciples. He called Matthew. Matthew was actually sitting in his tax booth, comes along and he says to Matthew, come follow me. Matthew leaves the tax booth, which meant that he left any means of being able to make money and follows Jesus. Jesus didn't condone adultery on the day he refused to stone the woman caught in adultery. He simply didn't condemn her any further. He didn't add further shame to her. But what did he tell her to do? He told her to go away and stop sinning. He said, repent, change your life. Jesus chooses mercy over judgment. Mercy over judgment. The Father's love is revealed in this encounter. And yet, he still, Jesus still acknowledges the sin. Ultimately, it was Jesus' lack of good reputation that led him to the cross. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law could not cope with Jesus' disregard for their man-made interpretation of God. They were so concerned with this man-made interpretation of God's law that kept the outsiders outside. And they couldn't bear it that Jesus just kept going and bringing more of them outsiders in. They couldn't bear it. The love he showed to those outside the religious walls drove them mad. And it made him even madder because he claimed to be God. What has Father God saying to us this morning, Vineyard? God is love, and we know that to be true, to be true, to be true, because we see it perfectly reflected in the radiance of Jesus. And Father God this morning is inviting us to love like Jesus, to love one another, even when we disagree. Do you know what, Church Vineyard, it's okay if we don't all agree on stuff. It is completely okay. But we still have to find a way to love each other in the midst of it. It's okay to love people who are neighbors, who are very different from us, who are living lives very different from the lives that we're choosing to live. In fact, it's not just okay. We are told to love them. We're told to love them. 
And you know when we know, we'll know when we're doing this right, is when people start talking about us because of the people that we're hanging out with. People start talking about the vineyard. If people come to me and say, oh, so-and-so in your church, they're hanging out in such and such a place. Well, then I know that you're doing it right. I know we're on the right road. Because we want to love everyone unconditionally. We're not approving of sin. That's not what I'm saying. Hear me on that this morning. Jesus didn't. Jesus never approved sin. Sin destroys people's lives. It destroys their lives like a cancer. That's why Jesus died. But loving is different. Loving is not affirmation. Loving is not saying, oh, this is all great what you're doing. Loving is just what Jesus has told us to do. It's what he did time and time again. And if you have an enemy, or if you have several, would you pray for them this week? Would you begin to pray for them? That God would change your heart and that they would go from being an enemy to a neighbor. Because the important part of that is that the freedom that God wants to bring in your life and your heart. So at the beginning of this summer, let's love like Jesus. Jason's called this series, The Summer of Love. It looks more like, where's have you got the visual, Ashley? No, we don't have the visual. If you see it on Facebook, it looks a bit more like a kind of a nightclub invitation. I don't know. It's like summer love. Anyway, this is what we're going to be talking about all summer. We're going to be talking about love. We're going to be talking about why, how we do that, what that looks like in our life. But this morning, I wanted to kick us off by talking about the one who has taught us how to do it, Jesus. Let's stand.